Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Now, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to continue our study. And this is, so we got out of the seven churches, right? We, we, we talked about all seven of those, and we've kind of looked at ourselves through each one, good, bad, ugly, and said, okay, where are we? Where were we, Ephesus? Where were we, Philadelphia, or Thyatira? Where were we, Laodicea, where we're lukewarm and getting spit out? It's a hard statement to think about. Where's that in my life? And now we start chapter four. We get into kind of not any other parts, but we get into some of the fun stuff. And so if you read with me, chapter four, Revelation, starting verse one. And after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, so this is Jesus speaking to John, says, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. And so think back to Revelation 119 where we have that kind of divine outline of what the book is. So Jesus is telling us we're transitioning now and we're gonna take, we're gonna look at the things that are to take place after this. So we're looking at future events here. And so at once I was in the spirit. John uses that phrase a few times through the book of Revelation. And so he's in the spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flights. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, So even right now as we are reading this, we are merely just repeating what they are already saying right now in the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never stop. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. 
And so obviously as we are moving forward in Revelation and we're looking at the future things that are to take place, this is where we're gonna really start kind of breaking uh, in, in interpretation and say, okay, what does this mean? And, and again, there's gonna be, a, you, you grab about five theologians, ask them, hey, what do you think this means? And you're gonna get five different answers. And then you're gonna have cults of Christianity take verses from here and we'll even kind of talk a little bit about what that could be in the later weeks and then you're going to even have that. So there's a lot to try to digest. And the key for me is always looking through what is the character of God and then scripture. You know, like basic Bible interpretation, like rule number one in that class, context is key. And you allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so we always look and kind of ask the question, is there any precedence for this? Is this mentioned anywhere else? And, and sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but those are good rules of the road that we have. And so we see this, uh, this taking, you know, allowing the plain, literal, grammatical understanding of Scripture. I will show you what much must take place after this. And so here is John in the Spirit, and he's looking, and we get a view of the throne room. That when we talk, because like, Technically, right now, this is starting this tribulational period, and there's going to be a lot of events that are happening at the same time, but you can't talk about them all at the same time. we got to talk about them linear, but there's a lot of things going, and we'll talk about that even when we get to chapter 7, because that's a parenthetical chapter, that there's other info that's going on that John just hasn't gotten to yet. But when this tribulation period starts, where's the first place that we go? To the throne room. The first place we go to is God. And so Jesus is clearly telling John that he's gonna show him what must take place after this, belonging to the future. And so in this full context, we're not going to earth. We're not looking for signs and plagues and disasters. We're not trying to find out who the Antichrist is. We're not looking at what the mark of the beast could be. We're not trying to pinpoint any aspect of the campaign of the enemy, which is going to be real, and we will discuss some of those things. But the first thing that Jesus wants to show John, because he wants him to see, he wants him to write it down, he wants to reveal it to us, the first place we go to is the throne room. And that is... Very key. Do not overlook that thought. But before anything else, what does Jesus want to show John? Come to the throne room of God. Come up here. And so in verses two and three, we get kind of a, a description of the throne. We get that more than he who sits on the throne. I always find that kind of unique. Like John was more captivated in at least what he was describing of the throne than he who sat on the throne. Or... He who sat on the throne, it would be kind of hard to use human language to try to describe who that is. And so the best thing we can do is let's talk about how great the throne is because later we'll hear the character of God being praised through their song. And so he tries to give us a glimpse of what he is seeing. And this is going to be really hard because some people will ask, well, is this figurative? Is it literal? But both are rooted and there is a reality of it. Either it really is, you know, an appearance of jasper and carnelian, and you can Google that and say, okay, what kind of colors would we be seeing? You know, and there's a throne with a rainbow. Like, what does that mean? Like, you know, like, 
Right now in our culture, rainbow's probably not the favorite thing of the church right now. And you, you know, there's some groups that are, oh, we need to steal it back. And it's like, well, it never was stolen type of a thing, right? Like the rainbow has always been about the covenant of God with Noah. And, and we have to hold fast to that because if we put more weight on a counterfeit of what that rainbow could be, then it could be a slippery slope that we would maybe even lose focus of another covenant that God made with us in the blood of Jesus. And so there's a rainbow and it has an appearance of an emerald. What does that mean, pastor? I don't know. It could literally be that or figuratively, that's how John's describing it. But either way, he's like, this is kind of awesome here. And however I can describe it, either literally I'm gonna be at a loss of words and figuratively, I don't even know how to describe it. And I love that, that, it's, that we need to be okay with not having an exact answer. But the key is that he's standing there and he sees this throne and he sees him who is sitting on this throne, but then around it, there's 24 thrones and upon them there are 24 elders. And again, you grab about five theologians and you ask them who these people are, you're gonna get a lot of crazy different answers. And so some would say, oh, these are, these are angels, these are spiritual beings, that's who's sitting on the throne. Then you would have others that say, no, this is Old Testament saints, they're who is sitting on the throne. Then you have some people that like, don't wanna like, fight and they wanna be Switzerland and like, no, it's both. And we, we just all need to get along in peace, right? And then some think it's the half Old Testament because of the 12 tribes, and then we think of the 12 apostles, and so that's who it is. It's the old and the new, and it's all together in one. And we always try to run and try to explain and, and find other little things in there that logically could make sense. But just read the text slowly, carefully, just read the text. And, and the key here is John didn't have any trouble understanding who these people were. See, he will later in verse, or verse, chapter seven, he'll see a great multitude and he won't really understand who that is. And one of these elders will have to tell him, oh, those are tribulation saints. And scripture tells us that. So there is sometimes, there's a group of people that John's like, I have no idea who these people are. But when he sees these 24 elders, he has no issues whatsoever. He knows who these people are. So are they angels? Are they people? If they're people, who are they? So listen to like their description here. They're clothed in white. They have crowns upon their head. There's seven torches of fire before them, which again, allow scripture to interpret scripture. When we go back to Revelation 1 and we see the seven lampstands, that's a reference to the church. Who else would be dressed in white, which is a reference to the righteousness of Christ? There's crowns upon them, which we'll get into what that means. There's seven torches of fire, and then there's the seven spirits of God. There's the fullness of the Holy Spirit seen in the church. We don't get a three-quarters dose of the Holy Spirit. We don't get a half dose of the Holy Spirit. There's a full Holy Spirit within the church. And so I fully believe that these 24 elders sitting on these 24 thrones, this is the church. But now we have to ask, well, why 24? Why not 18? Why not seven? Why, like, w it, there's other numbers that could be used. Why, why 24? And is there any biblical precedence for it? Right? So if you actually go to the Old Testament and you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 24, and there's no, like, the, the chapter and verse divisions were added in the 1500s. So don't be like, oh, 
Chronicles 24, 24, no, 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 no. That's not what it is. That's just almost a small bit of coincidence there. But if you look at 1 Chronicles 24, David is outlining the priestly class. So you had the 12 tribes of Israel, but then you had a priestly class. So there was actually a group of people that they had no allotment or share in their inheritance of the land. And they served in the temple. And it was the other 12 that gave unto the Lord. That's how they lived and were sustained was off of the offerings of the other 12. And that was the priestly class. In 1 Chronicles 24, David outlines them into 24 groups or 24 families. See, that's key because just like that, it's the Levites, that Levitical priestly class and even all of Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests, so they, they all kind of operated in that where we understand a priest is to identify with humanity as they approach God, where a prophet would be, you know, on kind of God's side speaking of God to people. That's why we are called a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom of prophets, right? A kingdom of prophets would be, and we kind of like that role. We want to go out and we just want to yell at people and tell them what they're doing wrong and thus saith the Lord and we're, no, no, no. We're a kingdom of priests, meaning we identify with broken, sinful humanity, and we approach God as that representative. And so these 24 priests, this priestly class divided in 24, they would serve in different functions and at different times, but they represented the whole. So think of when Jesus was uh, going to be born, there was a word that came to his cousin's dad, so uh, that would be his uncle, Zechariah, and he was serving in the temple. He was giving the incense offering, and that's when the Lord God spoke to him and saying, hey, you're going to be, uh, your wife's going to have a kid, and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord, that he was serving in that. And so when Zechariah would serve, he was representing the whole priestly class. And so in the same way, these 24 elders sitting on the throne around the throne of God are that same representing the whole of the church. And so we have to ask, are these 24 individuals or is that figurative, is that literal? We don't really know, but John sees 24 and he understands that's the fullness of the church that we see there. Again, clothed in white, crowns on their head, seven torches, seven spirits of God. And this is this royal priesthood. Because again, each part represents the priestly class and we understand that we are that. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says that we are a royal priesthood. And so when we think about what is our role as the church, that we are a priestly class. We are a kingdom of priests. And so we identify with broken, sinful humanity and we lead them into a right relationship with God. That's what a priest would do. That is the responsibility upon us. We're not prophets to go and condemn and speak and this is the word of the Lord and no, no, no. We share the gospel. We identify with each other because of our brokenness. We show how we can be in right standing with God through our trust and our belief in the gospel. We're a kingdom of priests and, and we're a royal priesthood is what Peter would say. And so this, this church is seated with God around the throne. Is there any precedence for that? If you remember last week, we talked about Ephesians 2, 6, 
that just as God raised Jesus from the dead and seated, with, seated him with him on the throne, then you kick down to Ephesians 2 and it says that God in his mercy raises us and we will be seated with him in the heavenly places. And so this is to see thrones around the throne, understanding that we are gonna have that. There's no backseat Baptist you know, in heaven. I'm a former Baptist, so I can say that. Grew up Southern Baptist, I, I'm allowed to say that. We get to see, sit with Christ in the heavenly places. To see those thrones, John had no struggle or problem seeing and understanding, oh yeah, that's the church. Who else would be seated with him? Like where else do we see that in scripture that somebody else gets to sit with Christ at the throne and around that? It's absolutely the church. And then we see that they're casting their crowns before the throne. Now, I'm just going to be honest. We're going to, like, if we haven't gone deep enough, uh, we're going to have a small little geek out. It's going to be fun. Hang with me, okay? So they're casting their crowns before the throne. We know in Scripture that there's five different crowns that are given to believers. There's the crown of life. There's the imperishable crown, the crown of rejoicing, and the crown of righteousness, and the crown of glory. So we have these five different types of crowns for doing different things. Like there is a crown if you shepherd people in the church. So there's a, there's a crown for pastors, right? And I need all the help I can get to try to cover this bald head, amen? Oh, thank you, you didn't amen it, that's perfect. But these crowns we understand to be rewards in heaven, right? So we, we are given rewards by how, not for our salvation, our salvation is secure in Christ, but how we live our life from our salvation, overflowing of our salvation, there is rewards for that. If you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in bigger things. There is a reward of how we live our lives. And even Jesus says, I am coming back, and, and guess what he's bringing with him? His recompense. And he's gonna give to us as we have earned and worked in our salvation, not for our salvation, but in our salvation. And so we operate as the church and how we do that in our faith and our trust in Jesus, not for salvation, but for our rewards. It's an absolute doctrine of rewards that we see in scripture. And, and there's this, again, is it figurative? Is it gonna be real crowns that we hold on our head? I don't know. Or is it, is it a literal thing or is it figurative? We don't really know exactly what those are. But if God is handing out crowns for how we live our lives in obedience and faithfulness to him, yeah, I'm, I'm all in, right? It's kind of like if the hostess uh, cupcake place is handing out free Twinkies, like, I'm gonna be there. And am I gonna walk up and be like, hey, we're handing out free Twinkies. Like, what's the limit? There is no limit. Like, who's gonna walk up and be like, oh, I'll take one then? No, right? Like, I'm holding the shirt out. We're putting a bunch in there. I'm just telling the kids, put them in your pockets. You know, those are daddy's, not yours. These are mine, right? You're just my little packed mule, and I want as many as possible, for faithfully serving Jesus. Now, what's really cool is as we talk about end times and we're looking at this tribulation and how the different events are gonna take place for this end times campaign, there's something that we have on earth that we could look at as a type of, right? And so in the Old Testament, there was always types of. One of my favorite things to talk about a type of Christ is Abraham and Isaac when they walked up on Mount Moriah and they put the wood on the sun and he carried it. 
and the father was to sacrifice the son. But what happened when they got there? There was a substitutionary atonement. That was a type of Christ. And even the mountain that they went to, it's the same mountain that Jesus was crucified on. It was a type of Christ. And so when we look at these end times, is there any type of that we could look at to give us greater context for it? Well, there is. Ever been to a Jewish wedding? If you study a Jewish wedding and you understand some of the context there, you'll, you'll read that and be like, hold on. <laughs> There's something really familiar about this, right? So in a Jewish wedding, and, and we see parts and context for it. Think of Joseph and Mary. They were betrothed together. There was a betrothal period of time where legally they were bound together, but they didn't get the uh, physical benefits of the marriage, if you know what I mean, right? And that's what was so crazy that Mary was with child because that didn't happen in the betrothal period. And so we get some key understanding there. So in the betrothal period, there had to be, you know, there was a, a, a... it was usually the father that was picking out, you know, and there was an arranged marriage type of a thing there that was very normal in this society, and there had to be a price paid for it, right? So I have three daughters, and I tell um, all these other dads that have sons, I'm going to need three goats, a couple chickens, and a cow, because my daughters are pretty, right? You know, we're just not like two hamsters. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to need some livestock here. There has to be a price paid for it. And so the father and the other father, they would, they would talk about what that price would be paid. Well, obviously we know the price that was paid for us, that our sacrificial lamb went to the cross for us. And then there's that betrothal period. And what happens in that betrothal period before the actual marriage ceremony? Well, the son, you know, is told by the father, go and prepare a place for your wife. And most likely, they would build on to his dad's house. And he would build a room and a little, you know, ensuite for him and his new wife. Do you remember Jesus saying, I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare that place for you, obviously, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself, and we're going to go into that. And so here we have the price that is paid and now we're in this betrothal because Jesus is preparing a place for us. And then uh, before the wedding ceremony, so we will get to the end of Revelation that'll talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I think is the pinnacle of human history on earth, right? But there's another event that is needed in that wedding and it's more focused on the bride, but the groom does it as well. There is a mikvah. It's a Jewish word for a ritual cleansing, almost kind of like a baptism. Some would point to that's one of the reasons Jesus was baptized. That was his mikvah. But where is the church as a whole? When do we have a mikvah? And we could think of our baptism, and it wouldn't be amiss by that, but there's also one more thing. Because what do we see these 24 elders doing? They're throwing down their crowns. What are their crowns? Rewards in heaven. Where do they get their rewards? That's the Bema seat. And so there's an event from the fetching of the bride, and there's, so you're gonna go get your bride, and there's gonna be a cleansing ceremony that's gonna take place. And so if you wanna hold here in Revelation, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we see this refining of rewards, which would be in a type 
of this mikvah of the church that would happen before the return, before the marriage. And so we are looking at verse, I'm gonna start in verse 14. All right, let's start in 13. All right, I'm starting in 12, I'm lying. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, right? So those are good things, or wood, hay, and straw, not the greatest things to build, maybe you've read The Three Little Pigs, each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D, so there's a specific day we're talking about, will disclose it, the day of the Bema Seat, will disclose what you built your life on, right? Because it will be revealed by fire. Remember the seven torches of fire around the throne? And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So there'll be a testing of our work. What did we build our life with, not for salvation, but from our salvation? Was it with precious stones and gold and silver, or was it with wood, hay, and straw? Well, we understand what fire will do to wood, hay, and straw. That's called a bonfire. But with precious stones and gold and silver, there's refinement that is happening there. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But look at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so we see this refining, this purifying, this bridal ritual of purification before the marriage supper. And so when the elders are taking their crowns and they're casting them to the feet of Jesus, it's almost a completion saying these are a testament to our refining and that we are that pure bride for that day. And we, we understand that we are the bride of Christ. We are the church and he is our groom. And so this marriage supper of the lamb, then they're, you know, go from the bridal purification, then you go into the marriage supper of the lamb and you think about after that marriage, what would happen? The, the groom is gonna take his bride to that place that he prepared. So what happens after the marriage supper of the lamb? What comes down out of heaven? New Jerusalem that is prepared that is ordained, that, that is for us that Jesus prepared. And so we see all of these events really as a type of a Jewish wedding. And we could like totally geek out for like weeks about some of the nuances in it. But the key is before the events of the tribulation on earth, what does John see when he goes to the throne? The church is already there. And that's key because when we get to the end of Revelation and Christ returns at the second coming, the church is gonna be with him. But there's no other place in Revelation that talks about, well, when did the church get to heaven? That's not outlined in Revelation. We, we can go to other books for that. First Thessalonians will talk about a, uh, that we'll be caught up, that the dead in Christ will rise first, and those that are us that are alive will be caught up in the sky with him, that Jesus will receive us into himself. But when John steps into the throne room, when he steps in to see what heaven is, he sees the church already there. And that's key because, and this is me and we can disagree here, it is, the theological term is a pre-tribulation rapture. See, the word rapture is not in scripture. I will give you that because it's Latin and this thing was written, at least the New Testament is written in Greek. But when you go to that First Thessalonians, 
passage that talks about us being caught up with Christ in the air. That word caught up in Latin is where we get the word rapture from. And rapture is an imminent event, so it's at any time, and there's no signs tied to it. So when we look at signs of the times, we're not talking of the rapture. Now, there has to be some birth pains, and we understand that that'll happen more in the second coming, but those signs are gonna be present in the tribulation, not for us right now. Now, is there a lining of certain things that might happen? Sure. But if we're waiting and saying, oh, here's this sign, here's that sign, oh, the rapture must be soon. No, the rapture is an imminent event with no signs tied to it. And so a lot of times when we talk about, you know, because the other theological terms for when the rapture would take place, there's pre-trib, pre-tribulation means before. There's mid, so it's going to happen right at the halfway point. And there's, I could defend and critique all of these. And then there's a post-trib that's going to happen after the tribulation. And then you have some people that are like, there's no rapture whatsoever. But when we allow scripture to just, we just read it literally, plainly, this is where we line up. And a lot of times when we talk about the rapture and with the tribulation, the question is, is the church gonna go through the wrath of God? And the wrath of God is different than suffering, different than pain, persecution. That's different, right? Because the source, the source of our suffering and persecution and afflictions that we go through, the source is the enemy that wants to attack us. But the wrath of God, the source is different because it's the wrath of God. And there's nothing that Satan can do that would be on the same parallel as God. And so, yes, we will endure affliction. We will endure persecution. There will be suffering for the church. But that is in no way ever even close to what the wrath of God will be. And when we get into chapter 6 and start moving on, we will see the fullness of what the wrath of God is. And so the question about it, is the church going to have to endure any of that wrath of God in the tribulation? Number one, John, I don't even see the church there. They're in heaven before these events even take place. And plus, to go even further, another defense of it, to think that Jesus is our propitiation. That's that fancy word that means that he suffered the wrath of God for us. And so if we as the church were going to endure the wrath of God, it would be double jeopardy on God. It would be a smear of his character. Or Jesus wasn't our propitiation. So it's not a theological point that I want to drive home and that we have to hold to or you have no fellowship here. I'm just clearly teaching what Scripture says. And so John sees that this church is already there. And there's no passage that we have in Scripture that references the tribulation and at the same time the church. We never see them together in Scripture whatsoever. And so the church will return with Jesus at the second coming. And even though we have no details of how the church got there in Revelation, they were simply there at the beginning. And John had no difficulty recognizing that's who those people are, clothed in white, with their crowns, torches of fire, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, casting the rewards to Jesus. And even in five, it'll go further to talk about these people as a redeemed people. If you would remove the concept of the tribulation from it, I don't think that there would be a Bible scholar that would struggle to understand that description of a people and say, yeah, that's us as the church. But for some reason, when we put it in the context of the tribulation, that's when we lose our ever-loving minds. 
But what I love is that we go to the throne first. And what else do we see? Cherubim. We love that in the hymn, cherubim and seraphim. We sing about those, and some of us kind of wonder, like, who the heck are those people, right? So we see four cherubim here in the throne room, and they're guarding pretty much the boundary of heaven and earth, and that we know that they're carrying God's throne, and through them, all praise is given to God. And that's kind of key because we also, in scriptures or any other precedents, in Isaiah, Isaiah sees the seraphim, which is a type of cherubim. And so we see these different animals, and one's a man, and then the other three are animals. But you know what the seraphim were that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6? You know what the Hebrew word seraph means? Snake. John, not John, Isaiah saw flying snakes in heaven with wings covered in eyes and, they're, and they're, they're praising the same type of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Which I'm not a big fan of snakes here, let alone we got flying snakes and there's even a couple other references in Isaiah of a flying snake. But, and think that the cherubim and the seraphim, right, together, what are they responsible for? All worship flows through them to the throne of God, to God. And what was Lucifer? He was a lead worshiper as an angel. And he fell from heaven because he didn't want the worship to flow through him. He wanted the worship to stop at him. And what do we call that Lucifer, that Satan in Revelation? That dragon. Which you look kind of, and you squints a little bit. Yeah, a dragon looks like a snake. And what do we see in Genesis? What's deceiving Adam and Eve? Serpent, a sadaf. And even the crazy part, because like some people are like, oh no, it just means burning ones. And you can find uh, oh, some weird definitions of that. But when you think of Moses, remember when they had the vipers that went through Israel and they were biting and, and killed off a few thousand people? And then he put a bronze sadaf. And if everybody looked at it, they were saved and healed from it. It's the same word. It's the same word. And so we have these animal-like spiritual beings. These are a type of an, an angel. And so we see one as a lion. We see one as an ox. We see one as a man, one as an eagle. Um, a lot of commentators want to say there's a lot of depth of understanding of what are these a reference to. Uh, a lot of them think it has to do with the four gospels, right? So the lion is representing you know, Jesus from the book of Matthew. He shows us that he is the lion of Judah, right? So we know Matthew wrote to more of a Jewish audience. Mark, uh, so the, the idea that the ox or the calf is, is a reference to the Gospel of Mark showing that the ox or the calf was a, an animal of sacrifice. And so we're seeing Jesus as that sacrificial animal. And then Luke, he wrote to, to defend and to show that Jesus was the son of man. And so there's the, the man-faced looking cherubim. And then the eagle, John wrote about heaven, showing Jesus and his divinity. And so we see that, like, um, if you don't hold to that, I'm sure you're still saved, and, and, you know, that's one of those I think we can have, like, really loose harmony on. Um, I just thought it was interesting to kind of look at that, if there would be meaning behind those and understanding the Gospels. But what's crazy is these four living creatures, six wings, so they're flying, and Isaiah tells us, like, two of their wings cover their feet, two of their wings were covering their, their face, and two, they flew with. There's eyes all around them. 
So yeah, like try to draw that up and fit that within our cartoon Hollywood understanding of spiritual beings, right? Because these cherubim and seraphim, they have wings, but angels do not have wings, nor do we become angels, nor are you gonna get wings. That's, that's not scriptural. That might be Hollywood heaven, but that's not biblical heaven. But what we see is all praise and worship is directed to the character of God. That we're hearing that he is holy, holy, holy. We hear that three times. And, and a lot of commentators want to say, oh, they're just like trying to compound the idea of the holiness of God. And I think there's truth to that. But also we know that God is three in one. And so are these cherubim looking and seeing the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, three in oneness. You know, and so we see the holiness of God, we see the sovereignty of God, the eternality of God, so God is eternal, he lives forever and ever, there's no beginning, there's no end, to even try to apply that to him would be uh, a metaphorical statement of God, because to say he has no end would, it kind of puts in a difference, so he's absolutely eternal, he is worthy, meaning that he is unmatched in weight, to receive glory, honor, and power. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. That's what worship is about. Not, ooh, the ooey gooey's in my heart. That we are giving the weight of our lives to him who is worthy of it. And, and what we see here from the, here's the 24 elders, what's the main thing that they talk about in God? And by your will they existed and were created. So just by sheer God as our creator deserves everything. And what we'll get into five next week, talking about him as our redeemer, just compounds the necessity to worship him for who he is. That it is not optional from us. It's not like, all right, God, should I worship you? Like, are you real? No, no, no. His character demands it let alone, as we'll see in five, his actions demand it. That we were on the crash course to hell, dead in our sin, but he saved us and drew us out of that. And by his love for us. So his character demands it, his actions demand it of who he is. But the same question I kind of brought up at the beginning. Why did we go to the throne first? Why is it so critical for us to understand the character of God. It's key. Because the more that we see, that we know, that we understand the nature, the character, the essence of who God is, that is the proper and only way to view the wrath of God, the tribulation. It's actually the only way to view anything in our lives is to understand who God is and allow that lens of his character and who he is and what he has done, that's the lens that we should see everything else in the world. But how many times do we, myself included, do we reverse it? Instead of using the lens of who God is to understand our world around us, we look at the world around us and we look to God and we say, why do you allow so much suffering, pain, and hurt? Why are you allowing this in my life? Why did this happen? Why won't you do anything? And we attack the character of God, because we're looking at him through the lens of the world, which would be the most inappropriate way to view. 
that first we need to understand who God is, understand his character. We go to the throne room first before we ever identify any events in the tribulation. And the same thing for our lives, that before we look and try to evaluate anything about us and what's going on in our lives or what could be, run to the feet of Jesus and allow the lens of who he is, his grace, his mercy, his gospel, his truth, his love for you, allow that to be the lens that you see everything else in the world. That is the proper way to understand the world around us and to view Jesus. See, the, the issue is it's a biblical worldview. That's what, that's what that fancy term would mean. It's that he, God, is the framework in which we view, we understand, and we interact with the world around us. So when we have those commands of Scripture to impact one another, and we have those 59 things, and we hear about not allowing any poor around us and to remember them and to love our enemies and those that are far off from God, we are called to be that kingdom of priests to bring them near. And people would look at us and say, why would you do that? Because I know who Jesus is, and I know what he has done for me. And it is that lens in which I will operate. But if we reverse it and we see the brokenness of the world, we see the pain and the suffering, and we use that and we look at God, that's how so many people are frustrated with understanding who God is, is because they don't start with God first. They start with everything else and they don't understand then the will of God and the purposes of God for our pain and our suffering and for the things that are happening in this world. And so I challenge you, just as John, it, it's Jesus that says, all right, hey, we're, we're gonna go on a tour. I'm gonna show you everything that's gonna happen. Okay, where are we going first? We're coming to the throne room. Why, why are we doing that? Because I want you to have a proper view of God. And if we do not, I'm just gonna call it, if we do not have a proper view of God, his character and who he is, the rest of the tribulation will absolutely drive you further away from God. But if we understand who God is, and as we walk through the events of the tribulation, as horrible as they are gonna be, it will draw us in a closer walk with Jesus. Understand, Revelation was written to be a book of encouragement to the church, not a book of fear. It was to be a book of encouragement to the church. Now those on the outside of the church, if they get scared by it, absolutely. Whatever the Lord would use to bring repentance and a change of heart in somebody, absolutely, I'm, I'm down for it. But for us, inside the church, this is a book of comfort. But we have to start with God first. We have to understand his character, that he is holy, holy, holy. He is sovereign, he is eternal, he is worthy to receive all glory, honor, power. He is our creator and he is our sustainer. And we as we are waiting right now upon the rapture of the church, imminent with no signs tied to it, we, we wait passively? No. We wait actively. And we wait upon the Lord, and we know that our strength rises upon that, but we wait actively, knowing that the command that he gave clear back in Matthew is still valid for us today. Until we hear that trumpet, however the rapture is gonna be, you know, I kind of wonder about that. Like, you see the dead go first, and it's like, oh, hang on, here we go. You know, what's that going to be like? But until then, the command is still upon us. 
that as we go about our normal everyday lives, make disciples. Baptize them, teach them all that Jesus has commanded. Involve them in the word, worship, and the work of God. And we have to understand that he is with us in this. We are not alone. So even as we are waiting upon him, he is with us. It's a paradox and I love it. But as the church, having a book of comfort and encouragement, there is work to do. The fields are white for harvest, but the laborers are few. Revelation is a call upon the church not to ease up in its mission, but if we know the events that are gonna happen and we know what people would have to walk through without having a relationship with Christ, it should, it should be a pressing upon our heart and our mind that if we were ever gonna live in more faithful obedience to the mission that Christ has for it, today is that day. And we all have to look and understand who God is and understand the mission that he has for us. So I encourage you, seek the Lord and what is the work that he would have you do in the light of that day that is approaching. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you, Lord. Thank you for an opportunity to dig deep into your word. Lord, we know that there's a lot there to process, a lot that we need to chew through and understand. But more than anything, we need you. More than the order of events, more than the geek outs that we have, we need you. Keep opening our heart and our mind. Keep opening our eyes to your character, to your essence, to your nature. Let us fully see who you are, understanding your will, your purposes for us and the human history and the command and the call that you have upon us as the church, knowing that this is not a book of fear, but it is a book of comfort and encouragement. And so by your spirit, Fill us again. Be a presence of encouragement in our life to keep walking in faithful obedience to you, to continue to be your hands, your feet, your heart in this lost, broken world, always having the gospel upon our lips, Lord. Give us that kind of faith. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said,